Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 25th, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. First round of the tournament is in the books. We're down to the final 16. Uh, a lot of results in the first round of the tournament, as in the, as in the past, as usual, that maybe you don't necessarily shake your head at. And then one just out of the blue makes me go, what the hell was that, Wartburg? Wow, congratulations. That's a heck of a way to get into the second round. I think of last year, for example, Keith, um, you know, the Iowa Conference champ against the runner-up in the CCIW didn't fare nearly this well. And, I, and I'm struggling to find out and, and to put into my head exactly what I might have missed over the course of the previous 11 weeks to make me think that uh, Wartburg is indeed capable of beating Illinois Wesleyan 41-7 as they did on Saturday in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, you know, you can only watch one game at a time generally, and there were plenty of times – uh, on Saturday, where I wished I'd been uh, been watching that that uh, that Knights Titans game because it, it you know the scores they j- just came over and it sort of I don't say it didn't make sense but you wondered how did how did Warburg uh, you know blow Illinois Wesleyan out so badly and you know I got a chance to watch uh, Titans a little bit this year and they weren't a dynamic offense they had a a, a well known quarterback a guy we've talked about a lot but he wasn't um, lighting it up throwing it down the field they were very much a run. Oriented team that two good running backs in uh, in Devonte Jones and T.J. Stind. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Um, and you know the um, we we kind of predicted all of us in Triple Take that that would be sort of a tight score, a defensive battle. Warburg, you know, tends to be known for their defense, but this season they didn't have a dominating, smothering defense. Although that's the way they played on Saturday, and so that was that was really uh, a shocking result. I thought maybe. Among the probably the most shocking result of the first round, you know, St. John Fisher was a little bit of a shock. The margin of the Wittenberg game was kind of surprising, but but I don't think anything was more stunning than seeing Warburg just tear into Illinois Wesleyan like that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly could have flipped over and watched that game, Keith. But to be honest with you, it was out of hand pretty pretty early on. It was uh, you know seven nothing, fourteen nothing, twenty one nothing at the half, and by the time the uh, the one o'clock games get to halftime. The uh, the noon games. I'm talking Eastern time, obviously. Are uh, you know are coming down to it. Uh, I was you know at that point. Uh, I think it would be fair to say I was focused uh, on watching two games at the same time, if that was possible. Trying to watch both Franklin Washu and Wesley Johns Hopkins, and they both came down within minutes of each other. And those were uh, obviously two of the best finishes of the first round. Um, but you know, Wartburg just dominating, uh, holding on to the football, uh, held on to the football for, uh, um, let's see, almost 38 minutes. Um, you know, you, you talked about those two guys who were the, the big names for Illinois Wesley and, uh, carrying the ball and they combined for a total of 11 carries and 35 yards. In fact, the team as a whole, uh, negative five yards rushing, uh, and Illinois Wesleyan, obviously with some trouble hanging on the ball, they turned the ball over seven times. Gallic threw three interceptions. They fumbled three times. Tyler Hook threw a pick and it's just, uh, it's interesting. This is two times in a row now for Illinois Wesleyan back in 2011 and uh, this year now in 2013 going one and out at home to a team from uh, from a conference where the CCIW is by you know all measures superior. Yet in week 12, two times in a row, Illinois Wesleyan's come up short and today on Saturday, particularly short. Yeah. And 
You go back to 2011, that was a triple overtime loss to Monmouth. It was also at Illinois Wesleyan. So both of these losses were at home. And, and I guess that makes the Titans the test case of what's the worst way to lose. Uh, a heartbreaker, a triple overtime game like they did in 2011 against Monmouth. That was the Alex Tanney Monmouth team. Or uh, a game where you just were kind of never in it. And uh, I, you know, I don't know if there's a right answer to that. It's certainly both of those ways are pretty painful ways to end what were up until that point, very successful seasons. You know, Illinois Wesleyan uh, was nine and one, one of the toughest conferences. And uh, again, again, you know, they they weren't sort of outstanding in any way, but they they certainly uh, didn't give us any indication that that this was going to happen on Saturday. There was uh, nothing fluky about it for Warburg. You look at their offensive drives. You know, Pat, you pulled out some of the the, the you know time of possession stats, but the offensive drives. I told part of the story as well. The, the scoring drives are eight plays, 12 plays, 12 plays, uh, seven plays, and nine plays. And they also had a, a fumble recovery for a touchdown. But, um, you know, when you see drives of that length, it wasn't like Warburg was going up and down the field or just hit some some long passes or anything like that either. You know, they really grounded out and, and dominated. Big, big day rushing for Brandon Domeyer, 34 carries, 161 yards three touchdowns and Logan Schrader kicked in uh, two rushing touchdowns and 76 yards on 10 carries. So uh, I, the playoffs, a lot of times we see the difference between the big conferences and the, and the weaker conferences. We see it play out along the lines a lot. We, you know, you see the, the team with the best line play, ten, you know, begins to dominate. And, uh, you know, there, there are some times where, you know, you, one team has an offense that the other team's never seen and they dominate, but a lot of times it comes down to real, real simple fundamental stuff. And I wonder, you know, just by, by looking at the stats in, in this game that, you know, if Warburg just wasn't much better along the offensive and defensive line today, uh, you know, you pull out the, the numbers that we pulled out in the, in the, uh, you know, the rushing comparison, 274 net yards for, uh, for Warburg and negative five for Illinois Wesleyan. So that sort of tells the story right there. There was nothing fluky about this one. And it certainly makes the rematch of the, of the week two, I think it was the opener um, for, for Bethel and Warburg uh, or it was the opener for Bethel, not for Warburg, but uh, the rematch of that game makes it a lot more interesting because now these two teams, uh, both Warburg and Bethel cruised in round one, they play each other next week. And it makes that, that, matchup much more interesting than it may have looked had you forecasted a few weeks ago. The only thing that I can go back in my head and I uh, remember is that when I went to see Illinois Wesleyan at Carthage, I think I talked about it on the podcast that week. It's just Illinois Wesleyan didn't inspire me. They didn't, uh, they didn't blow me away. Um, uh, but they, you know, they finished out, they went nine and one uh, in the, in a tough conference. They earned their playoff bid and then uh, got sent packing in uh, in uh, the first round of the playoffs. So Warburg advances, and as Keith mentioned, they will play Bethel. That's in your bottom left bracket, for those of you who are uh, uh, in a four-bracketed bracket. You know, a horizontal page, not a vertical page. That's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, a couple of the great finishes on Saturday, we've uh, already mentioned what they were, but uh, talking about that, uh, the way that Wesley Johns Hopkins game came down, a, a game which got a lot of discussion over the course of the week because of the... Uh, because of the pairing that was placed there. And we really got as competitive and as um, dramatic a game as uh, I think we could have gotten out of it. Frankly, uh, it's a uh, Johns Hopkins comes down and scores with 50 seconds to go uh, to go up 24, 23. And then Wesley comes back and goes, you know, 80 yards basically in about 38 seconds. And Stephen Kadosu 
uh, as there, as Johns Hopkins is playing some of the worst prevent defense I've ever seen, goes 33 yards over the top for the touchdown with 12.8 seconds to go to win that game. It was, it's one of the few times I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk defense to Keith because you know, that's pretty silly for me to do. Keith is the defensive guy. Keith is the, the former safety on this podcast, but um, you know, when the safety bites on the underneath stuff, when you're playing prevent with 15 seconds to go, that's usually not a good sign. No, it really isn't. And I know in uh, that point in the game, I guess, you know, Wesley could have still, um, I'm, I'm, t- I'm jumping back. I'm saying maybe Wesley could have taken the lead uh, with a field goal. So they do have to respect that stuff because when Hopkins uh, scored with 50 seconds left, uh, they only went up 24, 23. So True. they, they couldn't, they couldn't, um, to a degree, you have to respect it more than if you if you were only playing to stop a touchdown. But by the same token, uh, you, you, safety is you know the first rule from from when you're you know put in the game in Pop Warner or whatever PB league you play in is you know stay deeper than the deepest. And in that part part of the game, you definitely have to bend your your rules or, or or suspend your instincts a little bit and remember that the worst possible thing that could happen here is me getting beat over the top even if someone even if you give up a completion in front of you you have a chance to make the tackle the, the kicker could miss the kick which is a whole lot more likely in d3 than it may be in the in the nfl um so you know getting to the 40 or the 35 is not a foregone conclusion that wesley would win you, you definitely have to keep that in mind as a safety and and i thought for me you know what really stood out is, you, you know, before you could finish the thought or before I could finish the thought, when Hopkins scores and goes ahead with 50 seconds left, they're up 24-23. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, they really did it. They uh, you know, complained all week about getting this tough matchup in the first round. And and when I say they, I certainly don't mean the players, but, you, you know, just those of us who follow it around the country. But um, you complained all week about getting this tough matchup. And, you know, at some point you say, well, Hopkins, if you're going to be better than a program that just wins the centennial every year, these are the games you have to win. You have to beat a program like Wesley, a name program. You have the game at home uh, in in the first round of the playoffs. This is a chance to really make a name for yourselves. And uh, it it was happening. You know, it was the the moment had had come. They'd taken the lead in the final minute. And all they had to do was was uh, run out the last 50 seconds of the clock and, uh, you know, that's maybe part of what separates a team like Wesley from uh, from a team like Johns Hopkins in, in a way too is that they have guys like uh, like Steve Kadosu who can go over the top and uh, and, and beat you in, in a late situation in the game like that. Pat, you mentioned they covered five plays, eighty two yards, and thirty one seconds, and uh, I believe Kadosu had um, three catches yards. on that final drive. Is that right? Yeah, he had all of the yards. Uh, yeah. three three compute completions to him, two incomplete passes for the five plays. So I mean, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of they have one player that that we I don't want to say you can't stop because they had to that point in the game, they had pretty much bottled them up. And, um, you know, just in the clutch, it's so cliche, but, you know, the big I'm not even going to say it, but 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 great players excel in, in key moments. If you think of it, three catches for 82 yards on that final drive. He finishes with 11 for 132. That means that he came into uh, those final 50 seconds with eight catches for 50 yards. So I can see yeah, your point about bottling them up. That's certainly true. Um, you know, obviously, I I really only watched the 50 seconds of that game, so I'm not going to draw any great conclusions from uh, <clears throat> from what I saw versus 
uh, when I saw Wesley at Mary Harden Baylor, but I did think that uh, Joe Callahan looked pretty good on that drive, obviously. Um, and uh, I saw some highlights where he was uh, where he was uh, being put on the run a little bit, but those are also Johns Hopkins highlights. So I know that the guy completed 27 of 43 passes. Obviously, um, if the big guy uh, had eight catches for 50 yards, you know, in the first uh, 59 minutes of the game, then obviously, um, you know, there's maybe not as uh, not throwing the ball downfield as much, obviously, but uh <sighs> Those final 50 seconds put them into the second round where they will face Ithaca. And Ithaca, with a uh, pretty dramatic win of itself, this is, uh, Keith, I'd have to say the big comeback of the first round, obviously, this is the team that was down big at halftime and came back and won the game and beat Framingham State. Yeah, there were a couple of games, maybe three, three or four, that were sort of tail-of-two-half type games. And um, for me, I, th- I don't know if that speaks to coaching more than anything else, but it, it, you know, it also, I guess, speaks to the resiliency of, of your players where you have this, your whole entire season comes down to this game. You know, you, you, you win, you play another week, you lose, you're turning the pads on a Sunday afternoon. And so it, it, there's no, there's, there's no other time to get it done. And when you go in at the half and you're down 13, zero or, or, you know, whatever the score is, so a, a number that you can get your mind around where, um, you can say, okay, we have a chance here, but we got to get it together and we got to do it fast. You know, in Ithaca's case, they were down 17-3 at the half. Uh, Malik Van Alstyne having a great game for, for Framingham State. And uh, they they had um, some mistakes early in that game that, that cost them a little bit. And I, I maybe that, that probably has a lot to do with why Ithaca thought it had a chance to stay in the game to um, – you know, to get back in it, but they had to play outstanding defense in the second half and they certainly made the adjustments. Uh, the Rams didn't score at all in the second half and uh, Ithaca put the, the winning touchdown on the board with three minutes, 32 seconds left. Uh, Van Alstyne finishes with 120 yards rushing, but uh, total Framingham State in the second half, just 105 total yards, just 32 yards on the ground. Um, you know, you talk about halftime adjustments, which is, I think if you go back over the course of the last 15 years, we've probably said that word quite a bit. It's really two words, uh, but you get the point. Um, this is the, this is the time of year where, you know, coaches kind of can separate themselves and make themselves known, so to speak. Obviously it's not that nobody knows who, uh, who Mike Welch is at Ithaca, obviously, cause uh, he's been successful there for more than a decade. Uh, significantly more than a decade, but it's a, you know, it's the kind of game where, you know, someone can look back later and point to and say, Hey, they won this game almost entirely in the second half. And then the other thing that jumps out at me is of course they won this game with six rushing yards altogether. Yeah. That jumped out at me as well. You know, they got uh, 14 carries for 25 yards from their leading rusher, Rakim Jones. He only had uh, 1.8 yards per carry. There was nobody uh, offensively for Ithaca who, who did anything uh, of note. You know, you know, as far as dominance wise, you know, and and they had to go in, in that that uh that winning drive. They had to go sixty eight yards in ten plays. So they didn't have a real great day, but they they put it together when it counted. And then, unlike in um, you know, in the game we'll probably talk about next, I imagine the the Franklin uh, Wash U game because that was the other real great late finish. Unlike in that game, unlike. Johns Hopkins was able to do in its game. Ithaca had to come back out and and stop uh, framing one more time uh, in that game. You know, there there were like I said, they scored with three thirty two left the touchdown to Buffoli, and then they they uh, 
had, you know, the defense had gotten them back in the game, you get them the lead. And the worst thing you can do is have that letdown. You're fine. You know, you got to close that game out and, and, and finish whether it's whatever the, you know, the, the, some coaches say you got to just go for the juggler, keep your foot on the gas, whatever you know, cliche it is. You got to f- not lose sight of, when you score that touchdown to go ahead and you work so hard to come back and you finally get that lead, don't blow it right away. You know, the defense still had to go out and defend it. And I thought that was uh, almost as impressive as the whole half up until that point. Indeed, Framingham State had two shots at it after uh, after that uh, go-ahead touchdown. Uh, they uh, ended up with a uh, uh, failing on a fourth down conversion just short of midfield uh, at about a minute and 30 to go. And then uh, Ithaca had to punt it back, but... Uh, punted it uh, down on the eight. Uh, ha- a, um, unsportsmanlike conduct penalty against Framingham puts them half the distance down to the four. Uh, they complete, let's see, they convert one first down, two first downs, and then uh, intercepted uh, basically as time expired to uh, to win the game. So that was, uh, that was one of our toss-up games in triple take. Uh, the Franklin game, Franklin Wash U was a toss-up game. Uh, Johns Hopkins Wesley was a toss-up game. I think those were those the only three toss-ups though, right? There's a three where the the three of us did not agree on who would win, right? The other one was it's a good question. Was it Franklin? I mean, was right. it? And we all agreed to him to Sydney Maryville, uh, John Carroll, St. John Fisher. And we all good agreed. Question. We all agreed wrong on Wartburg and on uh, uh, St. John Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Well, we could we can look this up while we're, while we're talking here. But you know the the gist of what you're saying is is fairly obvious that there was in the first round it tends to be this way too. You know the, the dominant teams come in and they also the dominant teams get the the least dominant teams for their for their first round matchups. And so the uh, sometimes the um, margin of victory is not all that surprising. The winner is sort of a foregone conclusion in a, in a lot of these games. You know for the for Mayhard Baylor's and Whitewaters. In, in, in Mount Union in the first round, I, Mount Union may be an exception to this because WJ made that game closer than we'd have thought it was. But a lot of those games, you almost don't even pay attention to them because there's all these great close games going on simultaneously, and, and you know there's no time to really check in on the, the teams that are blowing the other teams out. Remember, on Saturday, nine of those games kick off in the twelve o'clock hour Eastern, and then. The twelve o'clock uh, central hour, six more games kick off. So uh, there's nine games going on, and there's six games one hour behind that, and and that's fifteen of the sixteen games right there. And then the last game, the Linfield Pacific Lutheran game, kicks off uh, at, at what would be three o'clock our, our time. So it um it, at one at that point, you know, there's about an hour and a half, two hours there where fifteen games are going on simultaneously. You really only do have time to check in on those toss up games. But this was a one that obviously came right down to it as well. Uh, Franklin ends up uh, scoring 10 points in the fourth quarter to defeat Wash U 17-10, uh, including a uh, 35-yard touchdown pass with 18 seconds to go as Johnny West found Kendall Butler. And found Kendall Butler apparently is a uh, uh, is about the description to give to it because going through and uh, reading the uh, reading the game story from Frank- Franklin on uh, Saturday. Uh, Kendall Butler was not the intended receiver. Johnny Hessian was the original target, and uh, uh, apparently the wind took the ball a little bit more in Butler's direction, and Butler just uh, made the play on it and got the score. Well, and that's about as remarkable a finish, I think, as you could uh, you could dream up. 
that's about as Novembery as it gets. It was pretty. It was it was pretty Novembery in a lot of places. Obviously, there wasn't there wasn't any snow at Franklin, but there, you know, we saw snow at Hobart. We saw snow at Mount Union, and frankly, you know, snow may have played a big factor in the John Carroll St. John Fisher game. Uh, you know, we have talked on the podcast many times over the course of previous years that. You know, in order to be successful in the playoffs, you really have to be a multi-dimensional offense. You have to be able to, uh, you have to be able to throw the ball, and if the weather's bad, you have to be able to run the ball. And John Carroll was not able to do that at all on Saturday. No, the um, that was not really John Carroll's strong suit. Yeah, I got a chance to watch, of course, a good portion of that the Mount Union game the week before, and and their best player on offense is, is pretty clearly Mark Myers. He had a, a good connection with his tight end. They had some receivers that got down the field and ran the intermediate stuff really well. And and so that was their, their bread and butter. And obviously they went to it. And, and I thought that was an, a case, another game where, uh, you know, the, you know, Paul Vosberg and his staff probably made some great adjustments at the half because St. John Fisher, uh, 18-3, I believe was how they outscored him in the second half. And, uh, we we've known St. John Fisher over the years to be a team that's had to have some pretty solid defensive backs, and uh, it's not surprising necessarily that they that they picked off Mark Myers four times. But Pat, you mentioned the weather. You you just having a chance to watch um, John Carroll even in good weather. I didn't think their running game was outstanding, so it's not surprising that uh, that they threw the ball as much as they did. But it is surprising that they didn't have any success with it, and when they they fell behind. Uh, St. John Fisher, you know, they didn't really, um, there was no running game for them to go to, you know, at that point. Yeah. Tommy Michaels did have 87 yards on the day, but 43 of them were on one carry. Um, and, and it's, you know, not to make excuses for John Carroll, because, you know, to be honest with you, you, you have to be able to, you have to be able to win in all sorts of weather. And I, I think, feel like I'm being repetitive, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that, um, you know, we could, uh, chalk that up as, as an excuse for John Carroll, but really it's a point where John Carroll has to has to improve and has to uh, be ready to go next year because um, you know Myers going into his senior year, uh, presuming that uh, you know Tom Arth, who I know I've heard his name talked about for other coaching positions, um, assuming he stays around for a second year as head coach uh, to try to finish this out and uh, and do one better and not go one and out one and out for the second year in a row for the Ohio Athletic Conference runner up. Um, they really want to make sure that they find something, some solution, so they can uh, they can win in all weather and not just when it's nice out. Well, the the other bread and butter for John Carroll this season, and we talked about it probably every week on the podcast from like week four on, was the John Carroll defense, and that was a team that had given up only thirty three points on the season through week nine. They gave up forty two to Mountain Union, and they gave up eighteen. Uh, to St. John Fisher. St. John Fisher also scored on an interception return touchdown. So don't put all those points on the John Carroll defense. But the things that that carried the Blue Streaks throughout the season, their quarterback and their defense uh, didn't come up big, especially in the second half of that game. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason, uh, obviously, St. John Fisher won. And I know we're, we're sort of talking about it in, in a backwards fashion and in, in the fashion of how did John Carroll fail rather than how did St. John Fisher win this game? But I think it's sort of warranted because Carroll came in and, as a top 10 team in the country. And I thought, uh, obviously, they were playing at home. They were uh, playing maybe maybe the last team in the field. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the weakest team in the field, but the, the last one that got in. You know, we expected John Carroll to win 
and, and I know I'm speaking for myself, but also pretty much everybody who chimed in in the surprises and disappointments column, we expected John Carroll to go not just beat St. John Fisher, um, but maybe move on, beat Hobart, maybe move on and play well against Mary Harden Baylor. Yeah, well, and so the reason why, I think part of the reason why they're really talking quite as much about St. John Fisher winning is because I don't think this is particularly um, out of character. You know, this is, uh, it's not a huge surprise. I mean, none of us picked St. John Fisher to win this game, neither you nor I nor Ryan, but, you know, we've seen them do it before. We've picked them to do it uh, this way in previous years. So for me, uh, for uh, for St. John Fisher to win a game that people didn't expect them to win, yeah, that's not a surprise to me. I, I uh, th- These things happen. That is, a, in a sense, what St. John Fisher does, especially uh, over the last couple of years, their uh, their run to the quarterfinals two years ago with the starting with the two road games. Um, you know, this is a next level up, though. You know, you go and uh, win at the Centennial Champ and win at the MAC Champ. That's a different thing than winning at the OAC runner up, I would say, most years. It speaks to me a little bit of of the way St. John Fisher went out and, and crafted its schedule in a sense, and also the mentality they've had since they picked up that second loss where they feel like they've been in the playoffs already for four weeks. They've been in the sort of the never say die mentality. And I know that sounds um, cliche again, but but that's that's really how you think, especially when your team that has playoff aspirations, playing a tough conference, you pick up that second loss. You By that time you get number two, you cannot lose again. And, and so they, they've sort of, I guess the pressure is not new to them. When you look at, again, who they've played over the course of the season, their non-conference games, uh, Washington Jefferson was one of them. That was a playoff team that, that played fairly well on Saturday. They they had to face you know Salisbury. They had to play Ithaca. Um, they, they've been really well tested. They they blew Alfred out in week 11 to, to even get in the discussion here. So um, the, the pressure certainly wasn't anything new to St. John Fisher. And I don't know. Not that it was new necessarily to, to John Carroll, but um, St. John Fisher is, is well between its coaching staff, which has been in the playoff situations before, and between its players who've been sort of living this on living on the edge for the four, past four or five weeks now. They certainly were, were ready for this kind of uh, pressure. And, and when it came down to it in, in the second half, when it was a back and forth game, they were the ones who excelled. Yeah. You know, um... We will have sit down and have a more binding discussion of this uh, off the air in August when we come back and do uh, conference rankings for kickoff 2014. Uh, you can count on that being the uh, Tuesday before uh, a week and a half before season starts. That's all I can tell you about kickoff 2014, except we'll probably rank teams and we'll probably rank conferences. But going back to uh, the October uh, rankings that you did in around the nation, uh, it was one of the first times that the OAC moved out of the number two spot. Uh, had been, they had been number two behind the WIAC for quite some time. They ranked number four uh, in the in your conference rankings. And I think that, you know, I don't see them moving back up so far based on uh, what we saw so far this season. Obviously, Mountain Union is still left on the board. They could run the table, but I'm not sure that that necessarily changes my opinion of the conference as a whole. Well, the big reason for that is the the bottom half of that conference is just is not nearly as competitive as as the teams in the top half, and so you get a situation where John Carroll can go nine and zero, barely give up any points, and then get to the end of the season, lose two games, and the season's over. You know, it, this is a program that was a toast of the country. You know, two eight days ago, 
in all in all honesty. So you're thinking, man, man, this team could go pretty far if uh, if, if things break right for them if they play well because you couldn't you couldn't see any weaknesses. And I'll even take that on myself as far as um, eye test too. Like it wasn't just we're reading the box scores and we're looking at you know you have watched this team play and um, you know, they, it wasn't like they were big and big and strong and fast, but they also or they didn't have any super dominant. Uh, player outside of Myers, but uh, they didn't have real major weaknesses either. So this was something of a surprise. And I think it's a big, big credit to St. John Fisher, both the coaching staff being able to make the adjustments when that, when that game got tight and, um, and also being able to deal with some of the, you know, the, the John Carroll defense had some exotic blitz packages, at least in the Mount Union game they did. So uh, Fisher was able to deal with that. And, and it's just a credit for the, for that program. And, um, I, I I don't know if I should should extend it to to the East region or the New York schools as a whole, but it's certainly a real big big win. You know, how about we give credit to Pool C as well? Obviously, a Pool C team was going to win that game, but um, but it, it was a uh, it was a significant. It was more than a blip on the radar. It was pretty a significant win. Um, you know, as as significant as the Warper win, and maybe as as significant as any win on Saturday of the sixteen games that were played. Uh, we are going to run out of close games when we talk about the Hampton Sydney Maryville game, uh, a game which uh, I, I think had uh, halftime adjustments on both sides of uh, both sidelines. Uh, a game in which uh, it looked like they were going to be on pace to score about 150, uh, and then uh, so it was 35 to 27 at the half, if I do my math correctly, mm-hmm. because each team scored just seven points in the second half, and Hampton Sydney 142-34. Yeah, yeah, that sixty-two point first half, and then uh, and then defense shows up in the, in the second half. Um, it, it was it was a wild one, and the great thing about that is um, two teams are kind of a contrast in styles, similar to how John Carroll's built with a, a quarterback that had started out on the D one level and and had found a home in D three. Uh, Hampton Sydney has Nash Nance, big guy, big arm, can make all the throws, loves to tuck in and run it when uh, when the when the passes aren't there. Found his guy Holton Walker a bunch <laughs> in the first half of this game. Uh, finished with 16 catches, but uh, but you know, he, and, and honestly, this goes back to me watching the end of the Randolph making game when they needed a play, he just went to Holton Walker, and it got to the point where you know we're you're standing on the sideline yelling, "He'll double cover him, do something," because he uh, Nance. You know, obviously, I have never asked him this question face to face, but I guarantee he trusts that guy in clutch. And the playoff game, he said, "I'm going to my guy," and uh, he was open, and they racked up a bunch of points that way. Meanwhile, Maryville just does what it does and runs the ball every which way, uh, all down your throat. So it, it, you know, became again, as you mentioned, the 35-27 game at the half. Both teams go in, figure each other out a little bit, and had to play defense in in the second half. And the last score in that game, I believe, is like Hampton Sydney. I think it's like at the 14 minute mark uh, of the fourth quarter, and then uh, and then the teams just you know punt it back and forth and play defense and and pick each other off. And so it must have been a, a great one to watch. I know Hampton Sydney is a uh, is a nice venue, good place to play. Um, I, I think it's significant too in this in the sense that. These two teams, you know, had the matchups been different, they they neither of them would have been favored, and so you get a program and a conference. Uh, neither of these teams have had had, had a um, conference advance in the playoffs since uh, North Carolina Wesleyan from the USA South did it in 2007 with that big upset over Washington and Jefferson. 
the the ODAC hadn't won since 05. And so one of these teams was going to get a big victory, and it turned out to be uh, Hampton-Sydney on Saturday. And their re- reward, of course, is just a uh, cross-country trip to one of the best teams in the country. We've waxed poetic a, a little bit about Holden Walker's performance. I don't know if we actually mentioned the numbers, but it was 16 catches, 268 yards, and three touchdowns. Um, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull on the Catholic U hat just for a second and, and remember, um, you know that uh, had this that uh, Marty Favret, the offensive coordinator at Catholic, uh, during the uh, the three years that they made the tournament, uh, two years I think in a row where they uh, where they had halftime leads and then uh, and then lost them. I don't know if it was two years in a row, but two out of the three that they had the lead against Trinity and had the lead against Western Maryland, um, never in the game against. Lycoming, whichever year that was, wipe that from my memory. Um, but the uh, <clears throat> the mo hasn't necessarily changed. You know, Marty Favret, now the head coach at Hampton Sydney, still running the same stuff. Uh, you know, whenever they're in the playoffs, I write in the playoff capsules, regardless of what they say their official offense is any given year. I just write it as very multiple, because you know it's about that you you can't really describe it. Um, but I think of. You know, uh, the 97 game, uh, Catholic at Trinity, and I believe uh, Jeff Clay had 17 catches in that game or something ridiculous, very similar to to, uh, to what went on here. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like you've always had uh, one big gun receiver in that offense that they like to go to, whether it's been, you know, Jeff Clay at Catholic or Conrad Singh in the early days at Hampton City, that sort of thing. The easiest way, I guess, to to describe that offense when you were talking about it is it's it's one of the rare offenses where you may see the you know fullback trap one play and then they'll go empty backfield the next play five wide receivers you know everything is on the table and the thing about that as a defender is it, it makes you think and if you're thinking you're not reacting if you're not reacting you're not playing fast and you're a step slow. That that gives Hampton Sydney its its advantage. So, uh, you know, Linfield's defense is obviously going to be, you know, faster, stronger. It's one of the best defenses in the country, and so it, it's going to have a lot to think about this week. And, and they may have to rely on on uh, on talent. Hampton Sydney may hit a few plays against them and, and make that game interesting. But but ultimately, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's a tough tough thing to, to have to deal with as a defender and it's going to draw the best game out of all those guys on uh, on Linfield's defense in, in fact really the way this bracket was constructed Keith it's like whoever survived whether it was Linfield or Pacific Lutheran on Saturday was, was had played its second round game and then was going to get its first round opponent was going to come to them in the uh in the second round because that's really if you if we had the actual seedings if the NCAA would just admit that there are seedings which they still claim somehow that there aren't um you know, you would see that this is, you know, that was a 6-7 game, basically, and this was a 2-3 game uh, between Linfield and Pacific Lutheran, and now we have uh, something like a 2-6 game. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's one of the drawbacks of, of the system. I mean, we're used to it, so we don't, I, I guess we don't flip out about it anymore, and, and I'd say the, the you know, the Linfield and Pacific Lutheran fans are used to it. The players are used to it. They don't even... Uh, complain not not nearly as much as some other um, fans across the country complained about their matchup in round one. You know they're stuck on an island. They're going to play each other in the first round, uh, and, unless there's some kind of weird circumstance in in the you know there's going to be one team coming out of California 
with the Skyhawk automatic bid, and then they're going to be, you know, you need like multiple teams in in Texas to stick a team on island, and and it's a very rare situation, Pat. We went through a few of them last week, and they still didn't even work out to where you could could avoid it. So, you know, Pacific Lutheran now they're past uh, eighteen games. They've won all of them except for the four they've played against Linfield. That includes getting bounced in the first round of the playoffs uh, the past couple of years, but this season. Both the Linfield games were very convincing, maybe not very convincing, but convincing enough wins for Linfield where you don't feel nearly as bad as you would or as I did last season for Pacific Lutheran having to play in the first uh, first round, losing that game by seven points. Um, you know, 42-21 Linfield, uh, they were, uh, was, I think it was even 42-14 at one point. Yeah, uh, it was 42-14, and then PLU scored a touchdown with a buck 44 to go. Right, and uh, and, and the first me- meeting this season was 29-0, although we mentioned several times that it was 7-0 going into the fourth quarter, so that was a much closer game. You know, on one hand, you make the argument for, for PLU that um, – if Linfield goes all the way, you know, they could be like, hey, well, you know, we're the second best team in the country because uh, we didn't lose anybody but the best team, uh, which which would be probably a stretch. But but by the same token, you know, it, it's not a matchup that should happen in the first round, to be quite honest. But we know that's the hand that uh, that D3's dealt. You got to save the money, keep the teams close with, with geography. And so you play that game in the first round. Uh, might have been interesting to see, uh, you know, PLU and 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 Hampton Sydney and, and Linfield and Maryville in round one, but uh, that would have been teams crisscross in the country with flights. So we get this uh, Hampton Sydney uh, at Linfield in round two, and uh, and we got the games we got in round one. And I, and I thought the cool thing about that matchup and some of the other matchups, well, two two cool things really is, as I mentioned, you know, Hampton Sydney gets a chance to. Uh, experience a, a playoff victory. The ODAC gets a chance to to add one to its ledger, and and I thought all the games where the the not that strong teams met another not that strong team, and I'd put you know Franklin and Washu in, in this boat, mm-hmm. and I, I think there's there's one more maybe the Wittenberg Lebanon Valley game. The, the very next week they have to play someone you know one of the best teams in the country. A very tough matchup, and so you get that first round win, you enjoy it. You, know, you felt you deserve the win, but at the same time, you got to prove really quickly now that you belong here or else you're going to get bounced, just like your opponent got bounced in the first round. So we've been through all the games that were competitive, all the games that were close, all the games that were exciting. Uh, we uh, should talk about the top seeds, though, and, and some of them played games that were more interesting than they had to be, I guess. Um, Mountain Union, for example, jumped out to a 21-7 to lead, but never quite put uh, W&J away. Uh, I know they were up by three touchdowns going into the fourth quarter, but uh, compared to how uh, Mountain Union has handled W&J in the past, I think one of the, the last time they met might have not have been something like 59 to nothing. Um, it's a uh, it's it's just an interesting uh, week, especially going into week two of the playoffs for Mountain Union, where they face a Wittenberg team that uh, just crushed Lebanon Valley. But uh, Keith, I, I, I'm I'm kind of struggling to figure out what to make of Mountain Union not beating somebody by you know 35 in the first round. Uh, that's how high they've set the bar, where they're not a normal team, and and most teams would be plenty thrilled, or most of most observers would consider. 34 to 13 at the end of the third quarter domination. We look at that as mm, what's going on with, with Mount Union. Why was that a 21, 13 game 
midway through the second quarter. I think there was a stat that went around, and I think it was uh, Jeff Zapanich. Bench. I don't. I don't think I've ever said his name out loud before. I think it I've might be Zapancic, but I. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> just occurred to me. I've been reading him for I don't know five ten years, but uh, from the Alliance Review, the writer. I think he sent the the tweet around where um, he said. Uh, the W and J at, at the point in the game where, where they make it 21, 13, that's only the third team that's gone into uh, double digits in the first round against Mount union. And, and it was Ithaca uh, back when they lost 42, 18 was one of them. And I, I can't remember the other one off the top, but point being, they usually at this point in the, in the, you know, maybe the first two rounds, they just slaughter them. And it's not just that they they score they run they score a bunch on teams, but they de- defensively they really dominate. And they didn't have a bad game on Saturday. It, it, it's certainly you know W and J two hundred eighty three yards of total offense, two hundred sixteen of those passing. Mountain Union outrushed them two seventy four to sixty seven, which is really uh, actually really good. Uh, they got a great day running the ball from uh, from Bradley Mitchell, B.J. Mitchell, I guess we're calling him now. Yeah. Whichever one uh, he wants to be called it, uh, is fine by us. He's earned that uh, respect, even though he's just a, a young running back. Um, there was nothing bad about this this game for Mount Union. And actually, you could find some things really good about it, especially when you talk about the the weather going crazy and them just being able to buckle down and, and run the ball and, and ice the victory. Uh, no pun intended, but, uh, but yeah, I think it was definitely surprising to see the game be as close as it was. Cause we're used to these 49, seven, 49, zero, 55, three first and second round games from Mount union. Uh, you know, whitewater struggled a little bit as well. They were only up 10, nothing on uh, St. Norbert uh, at halftime, uh, 17-7 in the third quarter, uh, and then you know put a couple touchdowns on the on those on the board in the fourth quarter to make it 31-7 uh, the final, um, a, a lot closer than expected, especially considering um, you know, <laughs> if you if you're a Lake Forest fan, you want to go ahead and play comparative scores last week uh, with last week's uh, Lake Forest win against St. Norbert and and Saturday's Whitewater win against St. Norbert. Um, I get kind of puzzled by that one too again in the grand scheme of things it doesn't really matter because they advance but it makes me wonder about you know what might happen further down the bracket uh as uh, as things progress see this one d- didn't stand out to me as much because that's been the white water we've known most of the season the, the the offense is getting there but it's not there it's not the dominant white water offenses of the past this is really a team that that is um Great on defense. Uh, they, they're pretty good when they're able to run the ball with Ryan Givens and, and hit Tyler Huber every now and again uh, on, a, on a big pass play from, uh, from Matt Brent. But I, I don't think they are a team that's going to go you know, 30, 40 points with the, the better teams later in the bracket. They're going to have to win, in my opinion, uh, win ugly. And, and they just got an early start on it. They, they sort of, you know, 31-7 is not, not ugly, ugly, but they, uh, they had to grind out some, some long, long drives in this game to put points on the board. Uh, the nine-play, 99-yard drive in the third quarter, punctuated by that Ryan Givens uh, 12-yard touchdown run, was the, was the one that made it 17 nothing and, and put, a, put a couple scores between them. Then St. Norbert comes back with a 12-play drive, 17-7. And so it's an interesting game at that point or, or much more interesting than we expected it to be. But I think the important number for, uh, for Whitewater is the seven. And the, the, as long as their defense is playing well, nobody's scoring on them, they're going to have a chance in, in whatever game they're in. 
I guess uh, to me the even the seven is a little bit of a surprise. I, I wasn't sure how uh, St. Norbert would score on them, to be honest. Uh, so for Ryan Givens, this is a return to the lineup. Uh, 25 carries for 123 yards. Uh, he's been injured. He'd missed a good portion of the season. Uh, so Jordan Ratliff, who had been carrying the load for the last six or seven weeks, got just five carries on Saturday. Um, Jake Kumaro seems to still be doing all right after he got knocked out of the game a couple weeks ago with injury. He had six catches for 95 yards. And, uh, you know, again, the defense, the seven, uh, is a good number. The 169, the total offense, uh, uh, for St. Norbert, the number of yards allowed by Whitewater is a good number as well. Uh, another top seed, uh, Mary Harden Baylor, uh, beating Redlands 35, seven, another game, I guess that, uh, could have been more distant. Uh, you know, both of those games, the Whitewater game, I know bitter cold, uh, wind chill below zero, uh, Mary Harden Baylor, you know, obviously the, the definition of cold is a little different there, but, uh, snow, uh, rain slash snow slash wet slash icy roads and all that sort of stuff going on down in Texas this weekend. Yeah. And, and no disrespect intended, but I paid very little attention to this game and, and, I think part of it was because the outcome is somewhat of a foregone conclusion. You, you pretty much know Mary Harden Baylor at home rematch of, of an opponent that's already beaten pretty handily this season. You know, you, you don't mean this as disrespect to Redlands, but I just didn't see a whole lot of intrigue in that game. And so I probably checked in on that one uh, less than, you know, you, you get to a point in the, in this same, no matter where you are, whether you're at a game or you're, or you're not at a game, you're just, you're, frequently just watching Twitter and updating the scoreboard page on, on the site. And, and, you know, you just want to know what's going on in all these other games, at least if you have an interest in them, or even if you have an interest in the game that you're at, you want to know what's going on in the, the game against the, the team that you're going to play if you advance. So oh, there's, there's always this element in the first few weekends of the playoffs of, of scoreboard watching. And, and for some reason, I just kind of never made it over to the, the Mary Harden Baylor game. Um, but it, it it was a, a fairly it wasn't quite as dominant I guess as as most of the most of the time most the way they've been for a good portion of the season you know just three hundred seventy three yards of total offense three hundred four for Redlands uh, they got a couple of Elijah Hudson touchdowns early in the game and it was you know it was fourteen nothing uh, at, at the half they got a big punt return to open things up in the third quarter and then uh, they they sort of ran away from there but I think we could probably say roughly the same thing with uh with Mary Harden Baylor as we said with Whitewater in the sense that I, I don't think they're a team that is 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 as limited offensively or as you know beset by injury most of the season offensively as as Whitewater was I think Mary Harden Baylor you know has all its weapons and, and has the capability to be really explosive offensively but I think as long as you see that number seven up there as long as their defense is playing well they've been the best defense in in the country this season against the run and they faced a handful of good running teams. Although I guess you play down, uh, down in the old passing conference down there, maybe that skews the, the running numbers, but I think as long as they're okay defensively, you, even though the score is a, is, is a little bit surprising at, uh, at 35, seven, it's, um, it's, I, I feel like it's still a pretty fairly decent statement for them in round one. And the other, uh, other top seed, uh, one handily, Bethel defeated St. Scholastica 70-13. to That's the kind of score I've been accustomed to seeing from top seeds in the course of uh, first-round games in the past. Um, another game that featured a passing performance that was better than the one in the NCAA record book but is not 
the record. Uh, Eric Peterson, 25 of 27 passing uh, for 300 yards and four touchdowns. We've talked about this record slash non-record before uh, in the past. And also, um, you remember the uh, uh, the guy from uh, Lycoming also passed the record that's in the record book earlier this season. So even this 25 of 27, while, while spectacular and fantastic, uh, is not the record either. But, um, you know, Bethel obviously firing on all cylinders. So we're, there was some talk about why this game was played in the Metrodome. Um, I'm under, I'm of the impression that even though the weather today wasn't as bad as it was, uh, as it was forecasted to be here in the twin cities. Um, I figure Bethel's field probably doesn't have more than two or three games left in it this season. It's a grass field. Um, you know, there, there was a game played on it in the rain earlier this year. Uh, it's not in the, it's not in the greatest shape. And we're talking about, you know, November and December in Minnesota. So it's not going to get, uh, it's not going to get better between now and then. This was the one opportunity that Bethel had to play a game, uh, somewhere else, uh, rather than playing in somebody else's stadium. The Metrodome is tied up with high school playoffs and NFL games. And I think a monster truck rally, because that's what the Metrodome has been reduced to. Um, so this was their opportunity to play somewhere else. And they, uh, they had to take advantage of it this week. Yeah, if you have, there's not too many D3 schools that have this uh, alternate venue available for them, a domed one. I, I guess the other one that comes to mind is also in, in, in Minnesota, but it's uh, way up in in, uh, in Moorhead, where, where Concordia Moorhead occasionally can play over over the border in, uh, in the Fargo Dome if, if they need to. But there's not a lot of schools who have um, alternate fields available to them and alternate covered fields to where you're um, – to where you're able to to use that to, to get out of the weather. So I guess at this point in the season, Bethel, especially if you mention you know tear, not want to tear up the field for for future rounds, Bethel could go uh, pretty far in this thing. So yeah, you, you maybe do want to preserve it, and if you got that option, you might as well take advantage of it. I thought the the you know the numbers in that game really just spoke to the the big talent differential between Bethel and Saint Scholastica, and, and you know. The, Bethel's kind of loaded with uh, with guys, not just not just D three stars in their own in their own sense. And, and you know, Mitch Hallstrom and Brandon Marquardt and and uh, you know Hill Brands and Eric Peterson, but um, but guys are experienced too. You know, they've they've been down this road before, and so it, it's a big difference between between a Bethel and a Saint Scholastica. I'd say there were a couple of non first uh, or top seed games that looked pretty similar to these. Anyway, um, you talked about. Mary Harden Baylor uh, Redlands being the game that you did not really follow at all. For me, that was the North Central Albion game, uh, the game which North Central won sixty-three to seven, and also North Central did us a solid by updating its score on the scoreboard the whole time, the whole day. So thank you for that, which meant that I didn't pay any attention to really to that game at all, except to know that it was uh, about as out of hand as we thought it would be. Yeah, and, and North Central is a team that's that's just been explosive offensively. All season, they they've got a great quarterback. They are able to mix in the run and pass. They're they're running, you know. I mean, Mountain Union's running it too, and, and Linfield's running it too. But they're running read option stuff and and package plays the same advanced stuff you see on Sundays in the NFL. So I, I think they're they're a tough team to uh, to defend, and and uh, certainly for for Albion where the the talent level is different, and you know you you got to go. Uh, play at at Benetti Worley Stadium, which was was from at least from the from what I could see on Saturday, it looked like it was it was pretty well rocking. Uh, just a tough assignment for them, and so 
I think, and I I wrote this in Snap Judgments, um, and you may see the hear the podcast before you see Snap Judgments or vice versa. But um, written column on the site as well. Um, this is going to be the biggest talent disparity I think between the first round opponents and second round opponents right there in in that uh, in that matchup between North Central and Platteville. Each of those teams, you know, cruised in their first round game, and then they're going to have a really really tough matchup in round two. Yeah, so Platteville uh, beating Concordia, Wisconsin, fifty four twenty. I know one of those touchdowns is a is a kind of a garbage touchdown at the end for Concordia as well. Uh, Platteville dominant to the point where John Kelly, the guy who uh, has been the starting quarterback all season, uh, you remember Platteville in two thousand twelve. I think they had like 17 quarterbacks get injured. Uh, John Kelly, Bryce Corrigan, uh, each got significant time. Each of them got hurt last year. They both uh, played on Saturday. The combined for 496 yards passing, 34 for 47. Uh, Andy Puccini uh, came up to give them some uh, 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 a run game, and then two guys who caught uh, over 100 yards receiving, and they were really – um, they were really firing on offense. It's it's not uh, not unusual for Platteville. Obviously, they've been playing like that most of the season. And and you pointed this out, I believe. I, I thought it was last week, but it may have been in one of the columns this week. Where Platteville is also the team that seems to let the other team score a lot. Yeah. And so they'll they'll put up a huge number, but but they don't they don't quite uh quite quite smother the other team defensively uh, the same way you know the, the Mount Unions and the Whitewaters and and Mary Harden Baylor's have been doing so. You know that's the the concern with them going forward. You match that defense up against the the North Central offense, and it, it you know could be fireworks or it could be a real slugfest. Uh, I did want to uh, throw out Austin Damashki. I'm not sure if I pronounced his name correctly, but he's the quarterback for CUW Concordia, Wisconsin. 24 of 46 passing for 325 yards, ran for 43. He's a guy who uh, they think very highly of uh, during their bye week in 2012. Uh, CW retooled their entire offense around him. They switched from, I don't know what they were running, but they switched to the spread, uh, like after the second week of the season to take advantage of his skills. And he's got another year left. So, uh, you may see CW's name, uh, down the road here, uh, as, uh, we start talking about 2014, there are, I'm keeping a check, my, uh, checkbox on my bracket here. There are three games we haven't talked about. Uh, and there's all, you know, all of them, there's something we could definitely, uh, there's something we could definitely talk about Rowan, for example, how they just dominated Endicott, um, which, you know, the way that it, they dominated Endicott Keith, like it was a Rowan Endicott game from 2005. That's how badly, it, that's how bad it was. 24, nothing is really not indicative of how that game went. Well, Rowan doesn't have a whole lot, uh, offensively, either. they've sort of been offensively challenged all season, but they, they need their defense to carry them. And, and the big play that they got out of their defense early, I thought made it made a difference in that game. They got the big interception return uh, early in that one. Dustin Deegan, I believe the, the guy's name was, um, he ran that back um, early in, in that game. Darren Dungy, sorry. I just wanted to throw yeah, that Close away. enough. Yeah. I, I, I knew I messed that one up, but I was, I was going to have to go back and fix it. But um, it, it, um, there was a big, big run back. We make things up every week on the podcast. Come on. Oh, then on, can, can, I don't think we make things <laughs> up. I think we pull them out of our, you know, rear end a few times. But uh. Well, I mean, we're, we've been making wor- words up. And oh, we well, there's definitely gradu- that. We graduated now to making up names that actually aren't the real person's name. I'm sorry. We try not um, to do that. 
big play off uh, on defense by Rowan, and um, that I thought that helped set the tone a little bit because they they they're great defensively, but they they need a little help for that offense, and and they got a touchdown from the defense, and then and then you know the rest of the day it was everything they did defensively. Uh, Endicott couldn't get it going. It was just 113 yards total offense. Uh, six first downs in that one, and Endicott was two for fourteen, maybe two for twelve on uh, on third downs, and then zero for two on fourth down. So just no success anywhere in that one, and and that's got to be really really frustrating when you know you 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 go through the whole season, you you win your conference, and you get into the playoffs, and then you get in a situation not quite like Albion where you're playing one of the dominant dominant teams in the country, and you know where they play North Central, Endicott gets gets a draw of Rowan. And think maybe this is a team we can beat, and and you go down there and you get smothered. I think that's real impressive for for Rowan's defense, and makes that that Rowan Mary Harden Baylor game a little bit more interesting because you just see how well the Rowan defense has been playing the past several weeks. Well, they're going to have to play really well. Um, Rowan threw for just thirty eight yards on Saturday. That's got to be the I I would assume. I know it's not the fewest passing yards in the tournament on Saturday, but I would assume it's the fewest passing yards by a by a victor. Um, but they had, you know, two guys who ran for a total of 343 yards, so that helped them uh, dominate time of possession. It'll be interesting to see how that goes against Mary Harden Baylor. I don't have, uh, you know, super high hopes for Rowan winning that game, but I don't have a lot of high hopes for almost anybody going down to Mary Harden Baylor and winning in this playoff. Nope, nope. And and you know, the team that we thought in that bracket that could really give them a push is bounced out in the first round by St. John Fisher. So. Yeah, that St. John Fisher Hobart game will be interesting. Rowan at Mary Harden Baylor. That's one of the two flights, I believe, in, in this round. Uh, Rowan's got to fly down to Texas. Hampton Sydney has to fly out to Oregon. And uh, most of the other games are, are sort of regionally oriented. I guess Wesley and Ithaca aren't exactly neighbors, but but um, close enough. And, and I think it, it'll be a it'll be a tough one for uh, for Rowan. It's a tall task. Uh, as you mentioned, for anybody to go down there and win, it's going to be eye-opening because um, Rowan plays at a nice little stadium in Glassboro. Well, is and there, you, you can talk about the newer stadium. Have you seen the newer stadium? Yeah, uh, at Rowan? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, I don't think it's going to compare to what they're going to see next week. That's the point oh, I'm trying to make. Yeah, no doubt. Sorry. Fair point. Uh, I just want to make sure because I know that it's changed since the last time I was at Rowan, which was <sighs> – 2006 playoffs against Hobart, maybe something like that. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to make sure that, yes, that is true. Almost every stadium is not going to compare to what Mary Harden Baylor has. And, and the fact that they're able to fill it up, uh, you know, it, it's, and who knows what it'll be like this week because those round two attendance figures are all over the board because, because teams are home uh, for, for Thanksgiving. And so you, or schools are out for Thanksgiving. I should say teams obviously aren't home, but, um, you know, the, the Mount, the Mount Union Wittenberg attendance should be pretty good because everybody's in driving distance there, but who knows what the, uh, what the other attendances will be like with, with the, if you got your students at home and you have one team who does, is not really in driving distance. Um, Another thing we uh, should talk about with uh, the Hobart St. John Fisher game, especially since we haven't talked about the Hobart Gallaudet game yet, um, is that uh, you know Hobart's uh, starting quarterback got knocked out of the game in the second quarter, did not return. Obviously, you know we don't have any idea what the status of Patrick Conlon is, or you know where things might go from there. Hobart scored just seven points in the second half, uh, and Stephen Webb on the first snap of the second half for the Statesman went fifty-eight yards for a touchdown. Um, 
that's an interesting uh that's an interesting matchup for Hobart especially if they're hobbled I you know was already I already think about St. John Fisher as a favorite in that game but even more so if I uh knew for sure that Conlon wasn't playing well certainly uh Fisher proved itself against a really great quarterback on Saturday uh had a great second half defensively and and if they are able to to go up to Hobart and and play against a second string quarterback Certainly going to go in. Uh, it's go- it'll be good news for them. Um, but but Hobart too, uh, I think has has they've been able to run the ball. They've been able to play great defense. Nobody stayed within three touchdowns of them since way back in week three, and, and even that was a was sort of a, a blowout game against Utica. So they really they're one of those teams who's kind of hit hit its its ceiling as far as they they, they can dominate their conference. They can win in round one of the playoffs, and you want to see how they perform in these games against uh, St. John Fisher, starting quarterback or no starting quarterback, because uh, they're one of the, the few programs in the country I think has, that has the potential to to break through and, and you know become a, a team that can win several rounds deep into the playoffs. But uh, but they've got their their work cut out for them, I think, on Saturday. About Gallaudet as their season ends at uh, at nine and two. Uh, you know, they played Saturday without Todd Bonheo, the starting quarterback. Uh, I mentioned he got hurt at the end of the game against SUNY Maritime. I mentioned there was a team who uh, threw for fewer than 38 yards, and that was uh, triple option Gallaudet, who was 0 for 3. Uh, you know, and obviously 0 for 3, you probably know what the number is there. Um, but the point being is that still uh, a, a really good season for Gallaudet. I obviously had no idea off the top of my head how many of these guys are seniors and how many of these guys come back, but you know, for a, a program that has been through all the ups and downs it has just as a program. Um, and uh, the athletic department's been through some, uh, some overhauling and some upheaval and some changes in the last 10 years or so as well as a whole. Um, yeah, you know, this is a good year for them, obviously, and a, a chance for them to build it into something a little bit better next year. But I, I, it's safe to say that, uh, they were never going to be on my top 25 ballot this year. Uh, um, the way that they played and I would not, they still have a couple of rungs to go. I think even though the coaches put them in their top 25, you know, we know that they tend to look at win loss record and not at strength of schedule very much. Um, there's still a, there's still a couple steps for this program to go before they're, uh, before they're in that position. And that's sort of, of, of what you get with the postseason. You get teams that had these great seasons and then, and then you meet your match. And uh, that, that's what happened with the Bison. But I thought what would happen with them over the past four or five weeks where they really became, I don't know if national phenomenon is stretching it, but they brought a lot of good publicity and, and goodwill to D3. And, and I thought it was cool when other D3 teams found out about Gallaudet, that it wasn't just a school that happens to be in the ECFC that they kind of never heard of, but that there's a really unique story there. That uh, that that people had got a chance to get to know. I thought that was one of the cool things in the postseason. But I think you're right. I, I thought they. I don't know if they were very fortunate this season. They they certainly won a lot of close games. It wasn't just the the Becker game where they had that amazing 
amazing uh, kick block return at the end of the game, and you'd see the video from different angles, and and you know people are losing it as as the the uh, blocked field goal, which would have been a game winner for Becker, is being run back for a touchdown. But they had some other real close games. They won a seven six game. They lost a seven six game. They had a couple of other games that were one score differential. So they were certainly very fortunate this season. I didn't think there was much chance of them uh, going up to Hobart and uh, and pulling out the victory, but they certainly were uh, you know were top twenty five worthy in spirit and and in what they they brought um, you know to D three publicity wise. So I thought that that was pretty neat. Indeed, uh, the Gallaudet twenty thirteen season is going to be one of the great uh, will go down as one of the great storylines of Division three football in two thousand thirteen. Uh, we haven't talked about the Wittenberg-Lebanon Valley game yet. Uh, this is a game that was out of hand early on, and I think we should use it to try to spin ahead into next week too, Keith, because obviously you, you've already mentioned that that uh, Wittenberg-Mount Union game should be highly attended. It should be uh, um, it should be interesting because these two teams are going to come in kind of on completely different um, trajectories, so to speak. Wittenberg is going to be riding high after they've just crushed somebody. And, and Mount Union, you know, obviously – um, the mentality is whatever the mentality is, but they're not coming off of as much of a momentum uh, boost as Wittenberg is. Yeah, I think the Wittenberg maybe by Monday or so is is going to temper that and say, okay, you know, playing Lebanon Valley, playing Mount Union is two completely different things. It's going to be worlds apart, and, and we have to humble ourselves if we're going to have any chance this weekend. Um, they were you know, Wittenberg's been pretty dominant all season, but. I guess the reason I didn't see it coming is because you see the results against Hiram and Kenyon and Oberlin and Allegheny, and you just, okay, you beat you know you win sixty six nineteen against somebody in in the North Coast. If it's not Wabash, it's not all that impressive. And uh, and so you know you then you see Wittenberg against another pretty good team, another conference champion. And uh, and you're right, Pat. It was never close. Desi Kirkman went went nuts. I guess you could say in the first round he had. Three three long touchdown catches and also a ninety yard punt return. He ended up uh, finished with five touchdowns uh, on the day. And and you know for all the crazy wide receiver performances across the country, the Holton Walker and uh, and some of the other ones, I thought his was was maybe uh, maybe the best of the day. And it's going to be a a, a big uh, change though from from playing. Lebanon Valley to Mountain Union. I, I guess I can't restate that enough that that you know you're not going to hit those 65 yard plays with ease next week, and so they're going to have to figure out how to move the ball um, consistently over the course of a full game. And uh, honestly, I'm looking forward to this one because I I think this is a game. I, I wish these two teams would play in that first week when when Mountain Union has the non conference game. I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that would be a fantastic game. It would be nice to see them uh, play each other. I know that there are some uh, uh, old line Mount Union alums who would rather see them play Worcester uh, because Worcester's a, uh, a more local rival and has been a historical rival of them over the years. But Mount Union Wittenberg would be a would be a great game uh, to see on a regular basis. Uh, we are already over an hour here, um, so we're going to save a lot of our analysis of the other games, the other second round games for later in the week. Um, yeah, but just as a reminder, so Mount Union Wittenberg, uh, and Ithaca Wesley, uh, those are the two games in the top left bracket. North Central plays Wisconsin Platteville and Wartburg goes back to Bethel in the uh, second bracket. Third bracket, Whitewater plays Franklin and Hampton Sydney goes out to Linfield. Uh, and then in the, uh, bottom right bracket, Hobart St. John Fisher and Rowan 
Mary Harden Baylor. Um, there were a couple of other things that happened this week, Keith, that were not directly related to the playoffs, or maybe they were directly related to the to uh, not making the playoffs. But um, you know, this is a, a coaching change time of year, um, and the most prominent one uh, was you know kind of two big stories back to back, big hits on back to back days. First of all. Uh, at Trinity, Texas, Steve Moore retiring, and he'd been there for quite some time, had led the uh, team to the Stag Bowl in 2002. And then the next day, Jeremy Urban, who's been a uh, uh, who was an NFL player for nine years, uh, D3Football.com All-American for Trinity on that 2002 team and was the offensive coordinator for the Tigers last year, takes over. Yeah, and, and it's really a – I mean, Steve Moore probably one of the – I don't know if I want to say like the, the 10 most accomplished coaches in, in D3, really a guy who, who's had, had an outstanding uh, career. The, the Trinity from like 93 to 2004 or five, I'd have to look it up, but they were just so dominant in that conference. And that was back when the SCAC was a, was a big conference and not a four team conference. So he was, uh, and he was one of those guys who was a straight shooter. Couldn't have been nicer to us when we met him down in Salem. And I'd say the same thing about Jeremy Irvin. Uh, certainly, kind of a different personality than 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 Steve Moore. Steve was this big guy and uh, had, a, had a real deep voice. And and, and Jeremy's um, certainly doesn't have that commanding presence, but is such a what's what's a way to say it? I mean, so is so highly thought of because he was such a hard worker. He was. Um, and just really he couldn't have been any nicer either i thought that was a great hire for them you know you don't see teams very often turn around and just give the job you know every team when when somebody steps down they say hey, we're gonna have a national search and sometimes they give it to the guy you expect it anyway but for trinity knowing you have a guy in-house who's who's a stand-up guy who's have nfl experience and who loves trinity the school i mean you know would always go back in in the off seasons uh when he was in the nfl and work out there and work out with the track team that sort of thing he's um he's going to be great for that program and, and it'd be good to see them get back uh get back to the level they were at yeah keith i mean i don't know if they're capable of doing that but i really think that this is the, almost the only hire they could make to make a splash uh the way things have been going in texas in division three football of late um you know, Trinity wasn't eclipsed on the field by Southwestern, but uh, Trinity and Southwestern have been natural rivals in a lot of sports. Uh, they're fairly, you know, not that close together, but for that conference, the old style of that conference, they were close together. They were travel partners in the, pretty much all of the other sports. Um, so Southwestern was in a position to make a lot of noise. And of course, Mary Harden Baylor has been dominating the, uh, uh, dominating the state in the recruiting wars and in uh, on the field for the better part of a decade. I almost feel like this was the only thing that Trinity could do short of, you know, convincing Larry Karras to come out of coaching retirement. I I don't know what else they could have done to, to make a splash. This is the move they had to make. Yeah. And, and I think it's one that, that will, uh, you know, keep, it's the best thing for Trinity because you have a, you have a, a guy who not only knows what he's doing, but, uh, but has the love for the, for the school and, and the mission of it. And so uh, if, you know, Trinity is, is never going to be, as I don't say as committed to athletics, but as committed to being successful in football, or if it's a new era in, in Texas football, and and we're not going to see Trinity return to this dominance, you at least have a guy who's leading your program is going to be churning out guys sort of the the right way, so to speak, uh, as well as you know trying to build back into a winner. At the very least, I would think that he'd be able to attract some wide receivers to play for him because he had, as I mentioned, the nine years experience as a receiver 
in the NFL. A bunch of other coaches uh, lost their jobs or stepped down over the course of the past couple of weeks. Uh, coaches at Averett, uh, Beloit, Nichols, Whitworth, and then Emery and Henry. It, it's uh, you know, Don Montgomery had been there for nine years, and you know, as a ODAC guy yourself, I, I think you know that Emery and Henry just never really did anything in those nine years, and he had a lot of opportunity to uh, to get something done there. Yeah, the the one thing about the ODAC is it, it every school was pretty much on solid ground had a, with with their coaching staff and and it had become a really competitive conference. You got Mike Clark and Marty Favret. You have the um, you know even when when Washington Lee made its transition, they went right from Mariello to their offensive coordinator, and he's a very innovative guy. And so every every program. You know whether whether it's Pedro Ruiz or Randolph Macon, even the, the new staff at Guilford, every program is on solid ground. And so, uh, you know, Don Montgomery, with the the years as as Mount Union's, you know, almost two decades, I think it was, at, um, as Mount Union's defensive coordinator before he went down to Emory and Henry. I think we all thought that was just going to be Emory and Henry. Remember, was was fairly dominant in the ODAC in the 90s. And so you you figure you're bringing in a guy from Mountain Union to a program that's already got a history of success. Not really any other D3 schools very close to where Emory and Henry is too. So they can kind of clean up uh, as far as recruiting. And it just just never happened there. And it's not like they, you know, they pulled the, the, the rug out from under him quickly and uh, he, he had a long time to succeed and, and it just never happened for him. And, uh, and I guess it, you know, it kind of stinks to see that because uh, I think a lot of people were pulling for him, but, uh, but that's what happens when you come in with the, the, the bar is set kind of high and, and they're looking for success. They're not just looking for, we want you to, you know, just graduate kids and go three and seven every year. That That's not going to cut it at a place like Cameron Henry. The way that that, that that season ended uh, at at Emory and Henry really under the radar because it happened on a you know a fantastic day of football where a lot of other things happened that uh, had playoff implications. But Emory and Henry is leading that game thirty one nothing with five minutes to go in the third quarter, and Guilford comes back and wins thirty five thirty one. You'd have to you'd have to think that that's a if if you needed a last straw, that was certainly going to be it. Yeah, I guess so. And and those are those are heart wrenching enough to live through that game, but to think. I uh, you I think they they were already uh, had had in mind the idea that they may want to make a change at the end of the season before that happened, and I, I think that yeah maybe had had be maybe had to be uh, you know solidified the the thought in the mind. So that's the Around the Nation podcast here for the uh, week of the twenty fifth of November, twenty thirteen. Of course, this is a holiday week; it's Thanksgiving week, so. Um, you know, we know that people don't come to d3football.com on Thanksgiving Day, and we're okay with that. You know, spend the time with your family. If you're playing on Saturday, you know, obviously that's a that's a pretty special privilege too. There's still 16 teams out there. 16 teams are going to be making alternate plans for their Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Of course, we still have a full complement of content uh, this week. We'll have uh, starting our Road to Salem features. We'll do feature stories on uh, teams in the playoffs rather than around the region columns. But, you know, you'll recognize the same names and it's uh, uh, the same great content uh, from guys who have been uh, and gals who have been covering Division Three and, and know what the, this stuff is all about. So uh, nothing new there. We still want to have Play of the Week nominations. I've got uh, one of them already, and this is a Saturday night podcast. So um, 
if you uh, if you have a, a play from Saturday, uh, even if you played in the Victory Bowl, even if you played in an ECAC Bowl game, we'd still like to see those. We would consider those as well. Uh, those are due by 5 p.m. on Monday. Uh, let's see. Nominations for the... Uh, 2013d3football.com all-region team are open. Uh, SIDs have gotten an email about this. Uh, nomination deadline is Sunday night, next Sunday. Uh, and uh, we uh, hope to have you know, another record number of nominations. We usually get about 700 people for uh, about 225 spots that we have. And then those nominations, uh, the all-region teams are automatically considered for the D3Football.com All-American team, which we announced on the pregame show for Stag Bowl 41, which will be on Friday night, December 20th, uh, coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, let's see. Of course, we will have... Actually, Keith, I don't. Uh, do we have an Around the Nation column this week? Uh, you mentioned, of course, we know about snap judgments. Um, and now, in the new era, in the new world of Around the Nation piecemeal, are we doing, are we doing a column this week? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know if we've... Uh, we usually have uh have suspended around the nation um yeah. into the postseason and just go with the uh with the road to salem but i'm definitely gonna do snap judgments and i probably won't be able to resist crunching the numbers as we get closer to the uh to to later in the week where the, where we start thinking more about the second round games and you probably noticed if you were on the site that we pushed this podcast out on sunday night rather than monday morning that's a part of the reflection of the short week uh if you did a uh D3 report on Saturday. Uh, hopefully you've sent that video by now. Um, and we are also always on the lookout for highlights and post-game interviews and all sorts of other videos that we uh, run in there for people to uh, take a look at what else happened around Division Three football this week. So for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman, and that's the Around the Nation podcast. In just an hour and 17 minutes. No big deal. Yeah. Not at all.